Good morning, everybody. Welcome back for another Bible study. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to the book of Galatians. I understand some of you may be listening to this in your car or somewhere else, uh, otherwise being occupied and you can't open your Bible. That's okay. Maybe you could go back and look at it later. But we're continuing in a series in the book of Galatians. We are hearing from the Lord. I really hope that that is what is happening for you. Because God has spoken and is still speaking. And he has done and is continuing to do so through his word, through the scriptures which we study over and over again. We hear that word, the word that God has spoken. Once for all, And yet, again and again, it becomes new to us each time. We're not just here to get some information, to have something to impress our friends with, or even ourselves with. We're here to truly and genuinely hear from God himself, because it is through his word That his spirit enters into us and actually begins to make us alive. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's why we have to come back over and over and over again. To hear the gospel over and over again. I love it. I love the scriptures. I love hearing God's voice. I hope you do too. And I hope that's why you keep coming back. Now, to tee us up here, today's section has to do with hypocrisy. So let's talk about hypocrisy for a minute. I would say anecdotally, my own experience, but maybe you have, uh, maybe this is common, Probably the number one complaint I get from former churchgoers is that the church is full of hypocrites. Hypocrisy is probably the number one uh, complaint there. And it's not just in the church, you know. um, In the last few months, the governor of California was, uh, they had a, a special ballot so that the state could vote whether or not to boot him out and vote another person in because of all the restrictions he made on COVID that he then didn't follow, you know, shutting down businesses and saying everyone's got to stay home and wear masks, and then he goes out to businesses and restaurants and things like that. He's not the only one. You know, that's probably been a, a, a big criticism of those on the right uh, towards um, those making policies on the left during the pandemic. Hypocrisy. No one likes a hypocrite. And this isn't something new, you know. Um, it's, it, it, it's rare to find the person who can utterly, who, who's utterly consistent in what they say they believe and how they actually live. Nevertheless, hypocrisy is a serious problem. And we rightly... Um, I don't know if you'd say balk at it, but we rightly are 
irritated when we see it, outraged when we see it, puzzled when we see it, in ourselves and in others. Nobody likes a hypocrite. That's something that happened in the church 2,000 years ago, when it was just first starting. It's not new. It's been around for a long time. So we're going to look at this today. We're in the, we're, we're in the second chapter of Galatians, and Paul is in the middle of, uh, he, he's not arguing a theological point so much, but he is actually kind of like a lawyer setting out his defense to the people he is writing, because he's been accused. He's been accused of not really giving the full gospel to the Galatian churches. He's been accused of holding back some of the requirements of the gospel so that maybe he could win more people, maybe so he could win favor of of people in Galatia and in other Gentile churches. <clears throat> That's what the accusation is towards him. He, he says this in, in chapter 1, verse, let's see, uh, verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to praise man? See, <clears throat> or trying to please man. See, that was the accusation. So Paul has to defend himself from these people who accuse him of making it too easy. They're accusing him of not giving the true and full gospel, all the requirements that are there. And the requirements that Paul is referring to, that that his opponents are putting on people, are essentially that in order to be a Christian, in order to follow Jesus, you need to also become a Jewish proselyte for a Gentile. So you need to get circumcised. You need to practice the dietary restrictions, the feasts, the fasts, all those, all those things. You essentially need to become culturally Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And Paul is, the, the whole point of Galatians is that that is not the gospel. That is not true. That's not part of the gospel is what Paul is saying throughout the whole letter. That's the whole point. And the way that, uh, that Paul's opponents argued against Paul's teaching that, though, that these requirements were unnecessary is that Paul was not a true apostle. Paul's kind of the Johnny-come-lately on the spot. And so Paul makes his defense first in the first half of what we read yesterday. He first makes his defense by saying that he did not learn the gospel from the apostles, but he learned it directly from Jesus himself through a revelation. In fact, it wasn't until 14 years later, and because of another revelation of Jesus, that Paul went to the apostles to see if what he was teaching was consistent with what they were teaching in terms of the gospel. So that's the second part of Paul's argument, is that He didn't need the approval of the apostles to start preaching because he got his his version of the gospel directly from Jesus. And then the second point was that 14 years later, when he did, because Jesus told him, when he did go submit his teaching to the apostles in Jerusalem, they gave him The right hand of fellowship, Paul says. He says, they added nothing to me. They didn't say, oh yeah, Paul, you missed this. 
So you need to add that in. So even if we were to say that the 11 apostles that remained, those who were in Jerusalem, let's say they have an authority greater than Paul's. Well, they even approved of Paul's version of the gospel. So Paul doesn't need their approval because he got it straight from Jesus. But if you want to say, let's get their approval, he gets that too. He's got that too. And now he's moving into the third form of argument, which is essentially that apostles can err. Can err. They can be in error. They can not practice what they preach. Let's read it in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, Cephas is the Greek name for Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. This is I, Paul. Opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James, that's James the Lord's brother, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So before certain men came from James from Jerusalem, he, Cephas, Paul, uh, Peter, was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the end of the reading of the word of the Lord. So, did you get, Paul's telling a story. Paul's saying that he was in Antioch. This was where Paul was based, out of Antioch, the church in Antioch. And in that church, you have Jews and Gentiles. And they're all eating together, this, this idea of eating together. It's not just like, oh, they go out to lunch. Eating in ancient times was a metaphor for sharing life, for having a common life, for being bonded together like a family. Eating is very, very important. So they were eating together. Peter, Peter was eating with these dirty, rotten, evil Gentiles, maybe even eating ham sandwiches with them or shellfish. But then when certain people came from Jerusalem, from James, Paul calls them the circumcision party. And that would be a certain sect that said, no, 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 no. The the gospel isn't just Jesus saves you. Jesus died to redeem you, to deliver you from this present evil age. Yes, he did do that. But in order to truly be in, in order to truly receive that salvation, you must become culturally Jewish by being circumcised and following the law. That was the circumcision party. So they come along, and when Peter sees them coming, he stops eating with the Gentiles. He starts eating with the Jews instead. And these 
these old rivalries are reawakened and followed again. I don't know if you've ever felt this kind of pressure in your own life. I remember this pressure when I went to seminary. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and just before you get too impressed, it's easier to get in there than it is to get into the undergraduate program there at the university. Uh, Some of that self-selection and uh, some of its other things, but um, don't get too impressed. Um, so there, at that seminary, there are people from all different kinds of denominations and people from all over the spectrum, politically and socially and morally, left and right. And there were whole contingents of people, the largest of them being the more, uh, of the more progressive bent, both um, theologically, politically, all the way across the board. And there were a few uh, theologically conservative-minded people there too. And depending on who was in the majority at whatever table you were sitting at, you could feel the pressure and the pull to go along, to go along to get along with whatever it was that they were talking about, to be agreeable, to be liked, There's a pressure there. And I have no doubt that many of you feel that kind of pressure maybe when you're at work. The pressure to talk shop with your buddies, to sound just like they do. Those pressures are serious, and when they mount, we can, like Peter, become hypocritical. I'm not excusing Peter, I'm not excusing us, and I'm not shaming us for that either. It's difficult, it's hard, I know. But where Peter is doing this, where Peter is doing this, the gospel itself is at stake. And that's why Paul faces him down. He says publicly, in front of everybody. He doesn't go to Peter privately, pull him aside and say, hey, you know, Peter, uh, Jesus said that there's no distinction anymore. There's no distinction. So, Peter, why are you why are you not eating with the Gentiles anymore? Why are you just hanging out with these guys? Oh, well, it's because... No. Someone just publicly. Paul's like, Peter, what are you doing? Before these guys got here, you were all, you were all chummy, and now you're pulling back. This was a serious problem in the early church. You know, Peter, when he first went to the Gentiles, he had to have a vision from God three times before he was willing to go. And then God told him what to do when he would get there. But when Peter got there, he said, I don't really know why I'm here. And they invited him in and he, was, he had his knees knocking. He said, I don't know why I'm here. I'm only here because God told me to. It took time to break loose, to break free from the culture, from the ways of thinking about people of other cultures in the mind of the early church. And even then, it was sometimes two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back.
it's hard. And notice, though, that Paul's argument here is not that, hey, there's, there's this new law. And the new law is that Jews and Gentiles must eat together. Paul doesn't introduce a new law to be added on. The problem with what Peter was doing was not simple hypocrisy per se. The problem was that it was not in keeping with the gospel. You see, if if Paul had said, well, there's this new law, Peter, and you're not following it. That would be just a different version of the same problem that Paul is addressing. That would be a different false gospel. See, one way to look at the the issue is that the, the problem for humanity, among other things, but the main problem is a disconnection from God. We are Uh, We are out of relationship with God because we are by nature children of wrath, Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in our trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience. So we are estranged from God. There's this gap. God is here and we are here. And there's this major gap, this disconnect between us. And as the image goes, there's a, the, the cross is what bridges the gap. Uh, more accurately, it would be that there's a cross that bridges that, that bridges that gap, and then you might draw a dove in there because it's really the Holy Spirit who connects us through the cross of Christ back to the Father. But anyways, we'll leave that aside. I wish you could be here and I, maybe I could draw it out. I'm a pretty visual person. So I'm trying to paint it with words. Anyway, so it's the cross that bridges the gap and the Holy Spirit that, that then applies it to us. But for most of us, most people, when they hear the gospel, they think that, okay, now, now that there's that gap, there's actually also this, this ladder between there. And that ladder is, is a, list, a, a list of eternal moral principles that you have to follow along the way. And whether that's um, the Ten Commandments or whatever modern version you want to have here in in this case, it's the Jewish law. It's that God has almost saved you. But there's there's just this list. So actually to connect with God again, what you need is more than just the life, death, resurrection of Jesus applied to your life through the Holy Spirit by faith. In order to get all that, there's this little tiny gap that's still there with this list that you got to adhere to. So our, our relationship with God is actually still mediated in some form by a list. Whether it's the list of Torah or any other list. We do not adhere to a list of rules and principles that are morally right. We adhere to the God of the universe because he has provided both the glue and the stick to stick us to him. 
And it is in keeping with that that we then follow principles. They are not abstracted from him or abstracted from the relationship, abstracted from the gospel itself. See, that is the problem. We adhere to a person. And adherence to the God of the universe has implications, has moral implications. I just want to be clear because it can be easy in hearing what we're talking about in Galatians and think, that God does not care, does not have a care morally, or that morals don't matter. They do. It's the ordering that matters. There is not a list abstracted from God himself that we must adhere to in order to be attached to him. There is no list. There is simply attachment to him. And the implications that come with that. It's keeping in step, Paul says, with the gospel. He says, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's the gospel itself that provides the guidance, not the list. Paul's going to say later on in chapter 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. He doesn't give a list of rules. He says, walk by the Spirit. You do not say, try harder to keep rules. You go in deeper into the relationship and stay close to the Lord. So that's, uh, sorry, I made that kind of like a major point. It's (laughs) It's not the major point of this particular passage. The point in here is that there is, uh, Paul's argument for his own, his own defense for his apostleship and his message, that he's not a man pleaser. Paul's point in sharing this story is that even those from Jerusalem, the original apostles, those who are recognized as authorities by those in the Galatian, in the Galatian church, even they can be in error. Even they can fall into hypocrisy. So Paul got his message directly from Jesus by revelation. That message was confirmed by the apostles who also learned the gospel from Jesus. Furthermore, those apostles can be in error. It's the gospel itself that remains true remains true, whether or not those who proclaim it are consistent in living it out. That's the main truth. And Paul knows that if he stays close to the gospel, stays close to that gospel, that is how he will not fall into hypocrisy. Do you see why Paul's blowing a gasket when the gospel is being distorted? Because now the very thing that draws us near and gives us guidance and shows us how to walk and what is right is being polluted and distorted. And what that means is that we will not be able to walk rightly. We will not be able to walk consistently 
We will not be able to keep in step with the Spirit and keep in step with the gospel if it's distorted. So let me say it again. One, the gospel is true. Whether or not those who proclaim it are consistent in living it out. Two, the gospel is that we are sinners who live in a fallen, broken, what Paul calls an evil age, and we need to be delivered from it. And we are delivered from it through faith in Jesus Christ, not adherence to a code. And it's that faith in Jesus Christ that binds us to himself and the implications of being bound to Christ, the implications of that are numerous and they include many of the moral things that might be handed down into a list, but that list is not the thing that attaches us to him. That's the gospel. And if you want a finer point on it, The way we are delivered is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This passage here specifically, though, is on that first point. So let's talk a minute about it. The gospel is true whether those who proclaim it live it out consistently or not. You know, the church has always had a string of fallen leaders. In fact, the people of God have. Read the Old Testament history. Moses was a flawed man. Adam was a flawed man. Noah was a flawed man. Abraham was a flawed man. David was a flawed man. And then get to the rest of the kings and it just gets worse. And you go into, you move into the church and we have this story here of Peter and his hypocrisy. And you have in the first few centuries, the persecution of the church. And one of the things that happened was the government of Rome instituted policies where their citizens and those under, under her jurisdiction had to burn incense to the emperor, which They knew Christians would not do. True Christians would not do that. So the way to out people, especially those who were accused of being their leaders, was to tell them burn burn incense to the emperor or lose your head. And so some of the leaders in the church during that time caved in. They burned incense to the emperor. And that left people bewildered. Did my baptism really work? What do I do with this fallen leader? Augustine addresses that. St. Augustine addresses this in what's known as the Donatist controversy. But that's not the only, I mean, it's, it's gone on throughout all of church history. You know, during the Reformation, post-Reformation period, the radical Reformation and beyond, Christians were murdering each other left and right, cutting out each other's tongue, burning them at the stake, drowning them in the river. And the leaders were looking on and cheering on their people as they did it. How can this be? 
You come into more modern times and you have the prosperity gospel preachers who are flying around in their private jets with their private airports on their private thousand-acre properties. Or you have what's probably always been the case, but is now being more and more revealed, sexual scandals and misconduct among church leaders. When it's in the news, it's usually mega church leaders because smaller churches don't make the news, but who knows, it might be happening in, on a smaller, in smaller congregations as well. It can be so disorienting. The hypocrisy of leaders can be so disorienting can't it? What do you do when you hear of the the next fallen leader, the next hypocrite who can't seem to live out what they're preaching? You might even be thinking, how can this be true? If this is true, people would truly be different. If the, if the gospel was true, it wouldn't be like this. And some people do just that. They go, to, they go to seminary and they hear all the nastiness that's gone on. Even inside the church, you know, there were popes who had multiple mistresses and children with those mistresses. And everyone knew it. You had bishops who purchased their office so that they could have more political power. It's been going on a long time. People read that. People find out about it and they're like, this can't be true. This can't be true. Christianity can't be true if this is how Christians behave. If that's you, I want you to know that you have my sympathy. It's, it's bewildering. It's disorienting. But I will tell you this, that does not negate it. It does not make it any less true. If your doctor says, you are dying of lung cancer, you need to stop smoking, and he himself is a smoker, guess what? You can't be like, well, you're a hypocrite, that's not true. Smoking will still cause cancer. And you can still die. Hypocrisy might say something about the individual who's proclaiming whatever it is they're living contrary towards, but it doesn't say anything about the truth of what they're actually saying. It doesn't say anything about that. The gospel is true even if every single person who proclaims it is a hypocrite and does not live consistently with it. Guess what? That's already true. I don't live perfectly consistently with the gospel that I proclaim. I want to so badly, but you know what? I fail. We all do. And it's not just Christians, by the way. People who aren't believers, they have a moral code. They have a a moral compass. They have things they believe to be true and right and good, and they don't live consistently with that either. Jesus is true. 
the gospel is true. And that might be hard to believe, but you know what? This is why we are saved by faith in him. And it's faith in him that saves us. It's faith in him that Christianity is all about. We believe in him, not in the leaders that we have who claim to follow him or do so however consistently or inconsistently. It's faith in him, not in those leaders that will save us. It's faith in him. Not in our own works, because you know what? We're hypocritical too. Everyone is a hypocrite. It's faith in him. Not our ability to live consistently with the gospel. To live consistently in his family. It's faith in him that saves us. And it's faith in him that saves us. Not faith that we're going to see a measured progress. You know, that over time, it'll get better. We'll become more consistent. If there's anything I've learned from older believers who followed Jesus for a long time, is that over time, they become more and more aware of how inconsistent they are. Of course, you know, you know maybe they, they first met Jesus and they were addicted to substances or something like that and they don't have that addiction anymore. But as they draw nearer and nearer to him, as the years go by, more and more things come out from the inside. More and more little deep, dark pockets of their heart are revealed to them and they come to see, man... I got more problems than I thought I did. I, I have more ways that I live inconsistent than I realized. And of course, you work on them. Of course you work on those things. You don't just despair and say, well, you know, I got problems. I'm always going to have problems, so I'm not, I'm not even going to try. That's not what you do. But you don't work from a place where you expect to have victory by the end of your life or that you personally or that the whole church will. You know, it's been 2,000 years and I just went through a little scope of history that shows that we haven't got along too far, have we, in the last 2,000 years? But the gospel is still true. We believe because Jesus is true. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and tells us that this is true. We don't use our eyes to see if our leaders are consistent and say if they're consistent, then it's true. We don't use our eyes to look at our own lives and say, oh, well, I'm doing this, so therefore it must be true. (gasps) I didn't do it. It must not be true. We don't use our eyes to look at the church, to look at history, to see how far things are progressing and say, oh, it must be true because things are so much better. Oh, it must not be true because things are getting worse. No. We look to Jesus. We are justified. We are made right with God, brought into his family 
not because of any of these things, not because of any level of consistency that we or anyone else has. We are brought in by faith in Jesus. And isn't that the key right there? Jesus. When you look at him, he is the true leader and head of the church. (coughs) Here's a man who lived perfectly, consistently with the message that he espoused. He not only loved his neighbors, but he loved his enemies, even to the point of death on the cross itself. He was forgiving, forgiving his enemies. He blessed those who cursed him. He lived consistently. He submitted wholly to his father and to the will of his father. It was the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross. Look at Jesus. Look at him. Read the gospels. Read about his life and say, is this one who is consistent? Is this one who is without hypocrisy? Is this one worth following, worth putting my trust in? It's all about Jesus. And when he had Roman soldiers pounding nails into his hands so that he could suffer and die and carry out the sins of the world, he had your name in mind. When he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. Because every ounce of hypocrisy we have is another hammer blow to those nails that held him up there. That old hymn, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin and yours that held him there. The one consistent one. The one who was without hypocrisy. The one who had the authority to teach Paul, to reveal himself to Paul. This gospel which says, in spite of your inconsistency and in spite of your hypocrisy, I love you and I want you in my family and I don't want to spend the ages and ages to come without you. If you don't know Jesus, I hope your heart is warmed and you want to know him. You want to follow him. You, is, who else is worth following? Who else out there? has the level of consistency and love and passion for those who follow him, for those whom he has made. We're going to be inconsistent and our leaders will as well. Their authority is not derived from their behavior. The authority lies not even in them themselves. It's in the gospel and ultimately in Jesus. And Jesus himself is the one who says, what you need is me and how you get me is not by doing good stuff, not by following any list. It's not by some sort of principles abstracted from who I am, but it's coming directly to me. Come to Jesus directly right now. Give him your heart. 
say, I don't know where my heart is or I know where it is and it's not in the right place. I need you. Fill me. Fill me with your spirit. Empty me out of all my contrary ways and fill me with you. Do that today. God bless you guys.